There it is. All right. Good morning, everybody. We are going to be in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Our goal is to finish what we uh, started last week with the chapter. Um, So if you'll kind of remember where we ended, we were around, uh, call it verses 9 through 11. So I'll just read those real quick. And I pray this, that your love may abound even more and more in knowledge and in every kind of insight, so that you can decide what is best and thus be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So what I mentioned last week was that I love math, and so I often look at things and think about equations. Um, if you think that makes me a nerd, you are correct in that. That's an appropriate assertion. Um, so I kind of look at this and I see a function or a, a problem. And so there's three things that you have to have. Um, love, abounding love, some of the verses are going to say. Knowledge. Uh, and then what I read said insight. But if you read the ESV, it would say discernment, right? So you have to have Abounding love, knowledge, and discernment. And if you have both or all three of those things, there are two main results. What, what do you guys see as the two main results in call it verse 10 and 11 from having those three things? We're in Philippians 1. Right now we're looking at 9 through 11. Okay, so one, you're going to know how to approve what is excellent. That's the first thing you'll be able to do. And then there's one more thing that, that you receive or that happens when you have these, these three items, abounding love, knowledge, and discernment. Being pure and blameless. I think you could argue there's actually a third thing as well. um, And that would be um, that you're filled with the fruit of righteousness. So you could, you can kind of do that how you want. When I read the net, I feel like it's two things. Or when I read the ESV, I feel like it's two things. When I read the net version, I feel like it's three. So, um, approve what is excellent. Be pure and blameless. And to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. So, um, a, quick, a quick comment. I think discernment, which a lot of us here use the ESV, and discernment is the third of those things you're supposed to have. That's not really a word we use a lot uh, in our daily life. Um, it's, a, it's, like a, it's like a church word. We might use it here when we talk about we want elders that have discernment or we need people to grow in discernment. What is discernment? All right, so wisdom. You might describe discernment as wisdom. How else? Okay, so um, the, what Sherilyn said is you're able to tell the difference. So I see that as like a depth of understanding, 
right? So you can um, not just have knowledge about things broadly, but you can differentiate between good and bad more easily. What are other ways that you might uh, describe discernment or maybe synonyms for discernment? Yeah, depth of insight, yep. Uh, You might say judgment, perception, understanding, depth of insight. All of these um, help you understand a little bit more what this idea of discernment is. I'm, I'm spending some time here because one thing that's interesting is like if you look up discernment, um, the definitions aren't helpful. Like if you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, which I did, the, the definitions were dumb. They were like the ability to discern. <laughs> cool. Um, and, and because it's kind of a little esoteric, I wanted to spend a minute talking about what it might mean. Um, uh, I, do, I do like a good joke every now and then. Um, so if you think about discernment as wisdom, do you know the difference between wisdom and knowledge? This is a joke. Well, knowledge is knowing that a fruit is a tomato. Wisdom is knowing you don't put tomatoes in fruit salad, right? Like. <laughs> All right, so, but that's humorous, but that's having a, having a lot of knowledge is very helpful, but if you don't know what to do with that knowledge, it's actually relatively useless, right? So, um, for example, if you look at the world of academics, there are academic scholars who have doctorates in um, theology, for example. But when you go talk to them, they don't actually have any belief. They don't have any wisdom. They, they have knowledge of the historical situation of the Bible, and they may write papers upon papers about that, but they don't actually have any wisdom related to the topic. So unless you have both, you can't get uh, these items of being pure and blameless, approve what is excellent, or be filled with the fruit of righteousness. I think we kind of can think of this as a three-legged stool, right? Um, These three pillars of abounding love, knowledge, and discernment. And without any of the legs, you have a problem. So let's, let's talk about that for a second. If you don't have, if you have knowledge and you have discernment, but you don't have abounding love, what sorts of problems might happen? Jerry? You'd probably be a jerk when you talk to people about it. All right. So you might be a jerk when you talk to people or engage with others about your faith because you have knowledge and wisdom or discernment, but you fail on the love side. What would James chapter 1 and 2 tell us you might lack if you were in that situation? Works, which here are called fruits of righteousness, right? Um, If you don't have knowledge, but you do have love and you do have discernment, what are some things that could happen? No knowledge. You might argue, can you have wisdom if you don't have knowledge? But just go with me for a second. Uh, it, but, you, but you have abounding love. What might happen? Which they might? Yeah, you might teach the wrong thing, which is a big, big problem. Um, yeah, so you're, you're, you either believe you're wise or you have some level of experience in the world. And so you, even though you have no knowledge, you believe that you're right. Um, I think you also have to question, there will likely be fruits that do come 
but they likely can't stem from righteousness if you don't have the knowledge of what righteousness is. What about no discernment? What's going to happen if you have abounding love, you have wisdom, or sorry, you have knowledge, but you have no discernment or wisdom or judgment? All right, so I like that. Driven by the wind. When others engage with you, you don't really have the ability to have a depth of insight, which Jerry mentioned was from one of the the translations. Um, And so you're kind of, you can be moved very easily on what you actually believe. You can be convinced that the, the thing that you know, the knowledge you have in the scripture is, could mean a lot of different things. You might not have conviction. What else? Crystal? That's great. So, so this is a, a big part of Philippians overall. The book is dealing with our relationships between one another. You can see this is informing that. And if you pull one of these out, you won't really know how to show the love to other people. You won't know how to engage with them on knowledge. You won't be able to actually influence them because of your discernment. In, in my history um, growing up, I think one of these has had a lot of focus in my growing up in the church. Does anybody else have that same experience that one of the three has been emphasized a lot? Alan's shaking his head a lot. What's the one you've seen emphasized a lot? What'd you say? All right, so Alan's had discernment a lot. That was not the one that I picked, so that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, knowledge. Knowledge. Knowledge is the one that for me has frequently been, I would say, leaned upon heavily as the one that we focus on, potentially. I think I have a theory for that, and it's because you can prove that you have knowledge. I can prove that I know the scriptures. I can prove what verses to go to to discuss what topic. Discernment is a little bit squishier, like proving that you interpreted something correctly or that you have depth of understanding. You can do it, but it's a little bit harder. And then love is, is way down that list. Proving that you have love is even more difficult in, in many ways to teach. And so in my lifetime, um, I think knowledge has been over-indexed. And I think there's been a whiplash effect that you've seen because of that. I think that's why you see lots of churches now whose focus is love. That is their focus, is love. And they abound in it. Um, but because they lack knowledge and discernment, what's one of the biggest issues they likely face? teaching the wrong thing, and they mistake love for acceptance because they, have knowledge, because they don't have real knowledge and they don't have discernment, but they are filled with love that leads them to accept everyone in whatever state they're at, which is potentially very good, but then they continue accepting that, right? That's why you have so many churches that are taking stances on homosexuality that don't make sense. You have churches that don't teach anything about marriage, divorce, and remarriage and other topics like that that can be divisive or lead us not to accept someone. Um, and because of that, they have a problem where they can't, they, they, they can't not accept someone because they just love everybody. And then they don't have this base, this foundation um, of, the, of, of knowledge and discernment. Here. 
and, it, and it, the Bible teaches that they believe that that glorifies God. In 2 Corinthians, we have the example of a man who was sleeping with his father's wife, and the church was, was proud of that and, and used it to say, look at how much we love each other. Yeah. And what does Paul say? We can make a change. Yeah, so in, in Corinthians, similar situations happening. Acceptance of those who are remaining willfully in sin. And Paul condemns the Corinthians greatly for that. But what I think we have to internalize a little bit is having love that abounds with no knowledge and discernment that leads to a sinful position for a group of God's people. Also, if you have knowledge but you have no love or discernment, that group is sinful as well. This is presented as you need all three in order to be faithful, to have right relationships with man and with God. And so we can't, we might easily condemn one of those groups, but not the other. Yes, ma'am. Yep. For that one scripture, but then you kind of back out to look at the scripture as a whole. And I think that's related to discernment, is not just proof texting or I, I won this argument, but it's having the discernment to know how to leverage all of those. Mike? Yes. Yes. And so you're still missing even that, those aspects, because you haven't seen the picture that God molded with all three. That's right. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, the last thing I'll say on this before we go on to the rest of chapter one is, in my estimation, generally the one we discount is the one we don't have. Yes. Yeah, it's true in all of our lives. We, if, if I have some skill and you have some skill, I'm often potentially likely to just discount, well, you don't have the thing I have, so it must not be as important. I think that's true with these two. If you find yourself discounting knowledge or discernment or love, that's likely where you need to focus more um, uh, because that's, that's a way that Satan helps to, to trick us into being comfortable where we are. That, that's not a big deal. I don't have that. Let me, let me go condemn those that do uh, instead of in, inspecting myself. Is that a salvation issue? <laughs> yeah, is that a salvation issue? Most of them are. Yes. <laughs> All right. Um, so we're going to read about a chapter. We're going to read 12, 2 through 11. We're actually going to focus on uh, the rest of chapter 1, but we'll read a little bit into chapter 2 today, uh, and then we'll go on. So starting in, in 1, chapter 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. The whole imperial guard and everyone else knows that I am in prison for the sake of Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having confidence in the Lord because of my imprisonment, now, more than ever, dare to speak the word fearlessly. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do so from love because they know that I am placed here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, 
because they think they can cause trouble for me in my imprisonment. What is the result? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is being proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My confident hope is that I will in no way be ashamed, but that with complete boldness, even now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether I live or die. For to me, living is Christ, and dying is gain. Now, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean productive work for me. Yet, I don't know which I prefer. I feel torn between the two, because I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more vital for your sake that I remain in the body. And since I am sure of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for the sake of your progress and joy in the faith, so that, you may about, so, that you, so that what you can be proud of may increase because of me in Christ Jesus when I come back to you. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent, I should hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind by contending side by side for the faith of the gospel and by not being intimidated in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God. For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. Since you are encountering the same conflict that you saw me face, and now hear that I am facing. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in Spirit and having one purpose. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourselves. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All right, we're going to focus on verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1. Uh, I want to give you guys a minute or two to, to jot down some notes, take, take note of things you see there, and then we'll discuss that a little further. All right, so what happened in these verses? What did you take note of? Julie? 
Okay, so Paul's in prison. That's the situation. And then what else do you say? God works in adverse circumstances. Alright, so God works in adverse circumstances. What does Julie mean by that? How is God working in an adverse circumstance? All right, so Chip said he, he I'm thinking of Paul, is light in a dark world. And what's the effect of that? What's happening because Paul is a light in the dark world? Yeah. All right, so what Christy said is those that may not have, call it normally or naturally, had an exposure to the gospel at that point, because Paul is in prison, he's able to teach all the guards. And then we find out later, towards the end of the book, that, that Caesar's household contained within it Christians, which I, I think you can read as an effect of Paul being there uh, in Rome as well. So that's one. That's one effect. Karen, what are you going to say? Go ahead. The result of trials and suffering should be that we dare even All right, so Ken said the result of trials and suffering should be that we dare even more to speak on the Lord's behalf. And, and I think you can see that here, where Paul not only references his own exposure to be able to teach different people that he might not have come in contact with, but that others, because they know of Paul's situation and how he's handling it, those people are now emboldened to speak uh, the word of God also. I think this is important for us to, to not look past that when, when I'm going through a trial, the Lord hopes that I will use that trial to, to, to serve him. But also that my service will inspire others as well. And I think we have to, that, that's, that's a, it's like a secondary reason. Our primary reason that we should serve is because that's what we're supposed to do. But we can also be strengthened and know that we're provided with an opportunity to encourage others in their service as well. Our mission is still the same. Yes. Our audience will change, but that's what we should think of is I'm still on mission. No matter what our circumstances it is to us, we got a mission. It's just a different audience. All right. So we, our mission stays the same. We have potentially different opportunities to show that, different audiences to show that as well. What about this discussion of some, or I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, even when, I think what you're getting to, when some preached for bad intentions, hoping to harm Paul, he still rejoiced because the gospel was being preached and spread. Yeah, so, so this is a real peculiar thing on a couple levels. One, there are some who they desire so much to harm Paul. I'm going to show him. I'm going to teach the gospel. Um, so Paul rejoices for that. I think it's, it's a fair question to ask. Were, were they teaching everything as Paul would have taught it? So you'd say no. Why would you say no, Alan? Yeah, so I think it's fair to interpret that these aren't the best examples of gospel teachers. These aren't the best examples of teaching the gospel fully. Um, 
Yet Paul still rejoices because the gospel is taught. Mara? Okay. The spectrum of evil and right really, that's one end. The other end of the spectrum is out of the will. Does Paul rejoice in all of that? Or is it they speaking out of evil intentions and some see that evil, they turn. And good will, you know, obviously for positive purposes. And the reason why I was contemplating if it's a spectrum is because in my life, I have seen... The gospel preaching error. Yep. And that would be in that spectrum. Yep. They're preaching it out of goodwill, but there's error in that. But should I rejoice because Christ is bringing from within that? So the, I had some thoughts. Make this kind of that feel great. <laughs> None of us want to say, oh, well, of course we should rejoice even if there's error being taught. That doesn't feel comfortable. It doesn't sound right, but we got a lot of hands. Callie? I, I'll be honest, it feels really uncomfortable because it feels like these people are preaching just to get practical. And I'm like, why would you rejoice in that? Why would you rejoice in someone preaching from not a good heart? It feels like to me. He answers the question. So Callie's question is why would Paul rejoice? Even if people are teaching with ill intent. Because Christ is proclaimed. So I think um, where, we, where we come down on this is clearly, I'm not saying like we should be excited when we hear error taught. However, I'm going to present a little counterpoint, and that is none of us teach the gospel fully or perfectly. Only one person did, and that was Christ. And so... When we see the gospel going to places that it wouldn't have gone without people going, our first thing should be glad that the gospel went there. And ideally, if it's taken with the scripture, those people have hope of finding the error. Um, a, a brother that my family has become very close to in Vietnam through my dad's work, his name is... His Vietnamese name is Doug, or Dang. His English name is Doug. I'm going to say Doug because people might not feel comfortable saying his Vietnamese name. Um, so Doug grew up in a monastery during the Vietnam War. Before the, before the war really got superheated, his mother, who was Buddhist, took him to a Catholic monastery. Um, quick backdrop or backstory. Um, Vietnam, especially southern Vietnam, highly Catholic for a while. That's because the French ruled um, Vietnam for many, many years, built lots of cathedrals. In Ho Chi Minh City, there is a copy of Notre Dame Cathedral. It's like at a, uh, like a two-thirds scale, like to that point. Um, so since that one burned down, you can go to Ho Chi Minh and see that, the other one. It's, it's pretty. <laughs> but there's a lot of, there was a lot of Catholicism there. So a Buddhist mother sent her son to a Catholic monastery. Not because she wanted him to become Catholic, but she said she hoped that the high walls would keep the evils of the world and war from his heart. And so her intent was not for him to become Catholic. Whoops, he became Catholic. Um, but in that, he became very, very close to one of um, the monks or the priests who were there. 
And as the wall, as Vietnam was falling in 70, southern Vietnam was falling in 75, that priest gave Doug his personal Bible as he was headed to the airport and told him, you need to read this to find God. What, what Doug told my dad just before he was baptized was, in the monastery I learned that Buddhism was wrong. And in that Bible, I learned that Catholicism was wrong. And now I just want to be a Christian. And he has been a fantastic brother and support uh, for my dad ever since. Um, he is one of the main evangelists in that country um, that we know of. Uh, and his heart is to serve. I, I tell you that story to say... I'm not saying that we should send money to people that are teaching things that we don't believe in or whatever. But what I'm telling you is, if people take Bibles with them, the gospel can be found within it. Even if those who teach it, teach it perversely. And we need to find ways to pray and support all of that um, of people who are willing to read and understand God's word. Let's go on to the, the last half of the book. Um, so uh, that would be 19 through 30. I'll give you a couple minutes to glance through 19 through 30 again and jot down a few notes. This passage is longer, uh, has a, a few more things we should take note of in it. All right, I'm going to tell another quick story that is about the gospel kind of going the other direction. So uh, another uh, gentleman that my family got to know in Vietnam, his name is Vaughn Thomas. Um, he was sent to Vietnam partially supported by the First Methodist Church that he attended uh, in Kentucky. I can't remember the, the city's name. Dad and Vaughn became very close and started studying um, together multiple times a week. Um, and through that, Vaughn kind of came out of lots of things that he'd been taught. Um, one of those was most certainly infant, infant baptism. Uh, that, that Methodist church that he grew up in, uh, they had a baptismal font that they did infant baptism in. Every year, Vaughn went home to see his family. And, and in that, when he was home, he would study with that congregation the things that he studied uh, in Vietnam. Over a series of years, um, he studied the, the issue of infant baptism and a number of other things with that church um, that he'd studied with dad. And over a number of years, they departed from nearly every one of those doctrines. They still had an infant baptismal font thing uh, in the building, and then their building burned down. And when they rebuilt the building, they put a baptistry in. They didn't put a, a baptismal font for babies in. I say that to, to also illustrate that their sign still said that they were Methodists. And they had studied themselves out of nearly everything that we would have any issue with. Most of us would never visit that congregation. But if we did, we wouldn't discern much different from how we read the scriptures. And that was because one man, Vaughn, studied over years and years every summer with those people. We can't assume what's going to happen 
when the gospel reaches hearts, um, one heart at a time. All right, verses 19 through 30. What do y'all see in here? All right, so Paul seems obsessed with the gospel being preached. So obsessed that he says he's willing to give up or delay what? Heaven. That, that he would prefer to go to heaven. But that for these brethren, his choice is to stay. Um, what what tor- sorts of things does this tell us about his relationship with the gospel and with these people? so deep that he wants to make certain that they have reasons to rejoice. That's, that's what he says at the end of the, the reading, is that his desire, while it was to die, his second desire, the runner-up that's actually the winner, is that he wants to give them reason to rejoice in the Lord when he comes to see them again. What, what does it tell us? Oh, go ahead, Crystal. That's great. So if you hearken back to the love, abounding knowledge and discernment stool that we talked about or equation, it it seems that Paul is living that out in this illustration that he's using of what he would prefer to do, but what he's going to do instead. That's great. What else did y'all notice in this passage? David Lee? It certainly is. So what David Lee said is wondering if, you know, his boldness and ability is related to that, that three-pronged stool that we talked about. It certainly is. Because you can pick out places in here where he says that I am certain of what's going to happen. I am certain of my deliverance. Um, and then he talks about what would be better for them. Well, that's, that's, he knows what's better for them because of his knowledge and discernment, Right. Um, he is willing to give things up because of the love that abounds in him. Great. Louis? I like seeing the consistency of what he said in Romans after being a slave of Christ. Here he is, like, literally being imprisoned. You know what I mean? And where he said before how he does the things he doesn't want to do, he does the things he doesn't do the things he does want to do. Well, here he's doing exactly what he's thinking. 
That's correct. So, so Louis is referencing back to in Romans when Paul uh, taught the what can be kind of confusing to read if you if you try to like decouple it too much. But the I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. My body and my spirit are basically at war. Um, I love thinking about this as an illustration of that. That that Paul in his flesh, in a way, it would be more comfortable for him to end it. But then in ways within his spirit, he knows he would get to go be in heaven. But he's, he's choosing to do something more difficult than that for the benefit of the Philippian brethren. What else? Yeah, so in my notes, I actually wrote, does Paul actually get a choice? I mean, I, I, I fail to think that Paul would actually commit suicide. So um, if you kind of take that off the table, there is a question of, does he actually have a choice? So do you think he does have a choice and we just don't understand why? Or is he using it as, as an illustrative point? He didn't know. Do you, do you, does the other church will know? No, you don't know? Okay. Yeah, I think he, when you combine it with the, he's certain of his deliverance, I do think that this is more likely an illustrative point that he's making about what he would choose if he had the choice. But still using that to illustrate love. Mara? That's a great point. So it, it may be him. He's recognized it isn't his choice. It's the Lord's choice. And he also recognized it's kind of already been decided. Chip? Oh, go ahead, Brian. Right. Yeah. Chip? Oh, no, Chip. Because I know at the end of the time, whether I live or die. 
And so Chip makes a great point here that, that Paul knows that he, he, can't, he doesn't have to feel shame if he does die. He doesn't have to feel abandoned by the Lord if death is the ultimate end. He gets to go to something better. Um, I think this is a, a, uh, an extremely important point. We're talking about it here related to life and death. Um, I think that's an important one for us to consider. But, but in our prayers, um, Drew's class last quarter talking about all the different ways that we can pray and what we should pray for. One thing he emphasized over and over is that the more we pray the promises of God, the more we can have faith that God will answer our prayer. Well, when you consider praying for physical things, which is often what we pray for, including whether or not people live or die, we really don't have any promises about that. Our promises are about spiritual things, that he will care for our soul, that he will provide a path to heaven for us. And so when we pray things that are physically focused, we aren't praying the promises of God. And then we are at risk in some ways if the thing that we're hoping for doesn't happen as we desire, if the person that we love dies, if we lose all our money, if we declare bankruptcy, if we lose our house, if all these things happen, if our faith and our prayer was about the physical thing, when the Lord doesn't respond how we think he should, now our faith is shaken because we didn't pray for something that he actually talks so much about giving us. Um, I'm, not to, I'm not saying that the Lord doesn't care for us physically, but, but the promises that we have are focused on the spiritual. And most often when I see people's faith shaken about things that they're praying for, it's because they're praying about things that aren't spiritually promised for us. I'd like us to look uh, a little bit more at the end of the chapter. We don't have much time. Uh, when he says, conduct yourselves in a worthy manner of the gospel, what does that mean? Because at the surface, can we be worthy of the gospel? Can we live a life that is actually worthy? In other words, earn your salvation. Yes. Can we? No. No, we can't. But yet he tells them to live a life worthy of the gospel. So what does that mean? Okay, so Barry said reflect the value of what God has done for us. Um, I agree with that. I think that's very good. Um, I think there's also something that we can... We get very uncomfortable anytime we talk about earning salvation, for good reason. But I think we can probably all agree that we can live our lives in such a way to not earn salvation. <laughs> we can live our lives in such a way to earn damnation. Scripture tells us we can't live thusly to be saved, but James 2 tells us how much we rely on works to prove that we have faith. So when you try to de decouple all these things, we can't live a life that earns salvation for us, but we can live a life that reflects the value, as Barry said, of, of what Christ has done and that we believe in his birth and his life and his death. Um, all right, that is all for today. Thank you for your time. Uh, one note, tonight we're going to have a follow-up to our group studies yesterday on leadership. I'm teaching that as well. 
Sorry about that. Um, tonight, um, we have I already put handouts in the back. If you'd like to get those, we're going to talk about three examples in the life of Moses that show opportunities and challenges for leaders. So if you want to look at that this afternoon, they're on the back, in the back, back there. Thank you.